Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Hello, I'm Sherry Hoyt, and I'm your host for today. I'm really excited to be speaking on the phone with Diana Forbes, author of Mr. Suffragette, a delightful, authentic historical fiction novel set in the late 19th century about a young woman who was drafted almost accidentally into the suffragist movement. But before we start, let's learn a little bit more about Diana. Diana Forbes is a ninth-generation American with ancestors on both sides of the Civil War. Diana Forbes lives and writes in Manhattan. When she is not cribbing chapters, Diana Forbes loves to explore the buildings where her 19th century American ancestors lived, loved, survived, and thrived. She is passionate about vintage clothing, antique furniture, ancestry, and vows to master the quadrille in her lifetime. Diana Forbes is the author of New York Gilded Age Historical Fiction. For more information on Diana Forbes and her debut novel, Mistress Suffragette, visit her website at www.dianaforbesnovels.com. Hi, Diana. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. To begin, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your book? Okay. I have a debut novel. It's called Mistress Suffragette. It's basically a story about a person who accidentally gets drafted into the suffrage movement. And meanwhile, her love life is sort of a disaster. And so her personal life is conflicting very much with what she's trying to do. And it threatens to unravel everything she's fighting for. Mm -hmm. And what inspired you to write about the women's suffrage movement? Well, I have always been very, very interested in American history in politics, and also I live in New York City, and my ancestors lived in New York City, and their ancestors lived in New York City, and I'm very fortunate to possess a box of letters from my ancestors, and I've poured through them many, many times, and I have photographs of these people, and I just got inspired and swept away and wanted to write about this period, this time period. Yeah, that's great. Writers often wonder what to write about. You've got a whole box of information right there. Right. Also, in terms of what I love to read, I really like to read 19th century stories. Mm -hmm. For example, I really like Henry James. I love Henry James. However, when I wanted to write in the time period, I don't want my book to be as difficult for a modern reader as Henry James. Mm -hmm. You know? Because Henry James is fabulous, but his sentences are three or four or five lines long each sentence. Yeah. <laughs> so what I wanted to do was write something that would hint of that type of literature, Henry James, Edith Wharton, you know, even a little bit earlier, James Austin, but not have the language be difficult, you know, have it be accessible. Right. I read your book. I wasn't the one that reviewed your book with our company, but I read it because I was intrigued. You know, we did the written interview together, and, and I couldn't not read the book. And I rarely do I read a book for pleasure anymore. I mean, you know, that's horrible to say, but that's my job. So, And I love right. to read, but you captured me, like, from the first sentence and the first page when you started talking to the reader directly. Uh, I loved that. And it was very catchy to me. It just it really did grab me. And I really loved uh, Penelope as well. Um, such an intriguing young woman with a, her wit and her sense of humor is just phenomenal. Thank it's, you very, very much. I really, really appreciate that. Yeah. Now, I know I, what you mean about how reading, I mean, with someone in your job, 
it can be sort of like it's your business to read. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? And sometimes that takes the fun away from it. Yeah. So when I get a really good book, I'm so excited, you know. And I was wondering, is there a bit of Diana Forbes in Penelope Stanton? I mean, it's not autobiographical. Uh-huh. But I feel like I take a lot of writing classes here in Manhattan. This is such a great city to be a writer in because there's so many classes to take, so many teachers, so much to learn. And one of the things that I worked on quite a bit with this novel was getting the emotion into it, like having the emotion be on the page. And I found as a writer that if you dig into your own emotional past history, it can really help. Like if you are crying, if you're sad, something, you know, then I run and I put that into the novel. You know? yeah. So in that sense, yes. Yeah. And as a native New Yorker, you must have been able to incorporate some of your firsthand experiences of the city into your story as well. Right. right. I, yeah. I absolutely, I know it's almost a cliche, I love New York, and I also love to walk around the streets of Manhattan and imagine how it used to be mm-hmm. back during the 1890s, which is the period that I'm writing about. And, you know, some of, some of it is aided by the fact that I have photographs of people in my family who lived here, and I can go back to their buildings, you know, which today may be modern high-rises, and I know what was there before and before and before. I like to kind of excavate Manhattan back to its 19th century roots, you know, and walk around as if it were like that. And in my book, um, and, and this is, I mean, my book starts in Newport, Rhode Island, Mm-hmm. My book, I if the building still exists, I went there. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I went there many times to take photographs of the building. Sometimes, like, for example, uh, one of the first scenes in the book takes place in an historic house that's now historic in Newport, Rhode Island. I went there, you know, many times, but I also purchased books about that place, you know, so that I could make it as real as possible. I mean, the trick with writing is, you know, a historical fiction is always to, you want to capture it, but you don't, it's not like a text about it. You know what I mean? Right. So, for example, I would be in writing classes and people would say, oh, you know, 19th century New York, it smelled so bad. It smelled so terrible, right, with all the sweating horses and everything else, right? Uh, the pigs running through the streets, et cetera. But the thing is, my feeling would be if you lived in New York during the 19th century, you would be immune to a lot of those smells because yeah. you're living there, you know? So I tried to write it, you know, without the modern sensibility, without saying, oh, you know, it just smells so bad today because somebody living there really would be immune. Yeah, absolutely, like anything. Right. Uh, How important is your writer's group to the overall process? Well, during the time I was writing the novel, I was a member of two different writing groups, and I also took many, 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 many writing classes here in New York, I would go, I would take continuing writing classes. I I went to writing classes at both NYU and at a continuing writing school called Gotham here in New York City. Mm-hmm. I took just millions and millions of classes. I also had a writing group in East Hampton, Long Island uh, during the summers. And I did that because I feel like 
all the feedback that you receive is just so valuable. So many times somebody will say, you know, this just isn't working for me, and they'll point out the place, and then they may have a solution for you. And I have often found that the solution that they give is not the right solution, Mm. but the problem that they point out is a problem, and it needs to be corrected. So my thought was to just show every page to as many people as I possibly could and find out all the problems and then correct them. (laughs) Yeah. And, I mean, it's kind of like editing your own work. You just don't see it after a while. You're so familiar with the text. You don't see it. I rewrote this novel probably, you know, hundreds of times. And some revisions are about character some revisions are about the language, you know, just some might be some historical little detail that you thought you understood and then later you find out you were wrong. For example, a typewriter, right? Well, the typewriter back then is not the same thing as what most of us might think of as a typewriter. I mean, it didn't operate the same way. You know, right. so there's one scene, you know, where somebody pulls a piece of paper out of the typewriter, but it doesn't pull out of the typewriter the way it would really actually pull out of a typewriter today. I mean, not that there are any typewriters left, but do you know what right. I mean? So, so, yeah, there are little tiny details. Um, one of the first historic um, houses in Newport, Rhode Island that I wanted to, like, there's a ball scene. I wanted to set it in a certain place, but during the particular year that my novel takes place, that historic house in Newport had burned to the ground. Oh, no. Yeah, it had burned to the ground. So these are the types of things, like sometimes I, I believe as a writer, you cannot get, you want to be into the research, but you don't want to get drowned in research right (laughs) you know and so there's a certain amount of research i did before i started writing the novel and then i said okay it's time to stop researching and start writing right yeah (laughs) and then when you're writing it and then rewriting it and people you know with the feedback groups and critique groups they're pointing out issues and problems sometimes that leads you back to the research and then if the research you know it might say oops that place didn't exist you know so i have to rewrite those 50 pages Mm. And and everything, but you know, it's just when you're writing it, there's a you have to be able to say, you know what, a little bit of it is a mess, and then I'm going to clean it up. Right. Don't try and write a perfect first draft because it's right. not going to happen. It can't be perfect. <laughs> you know, I would say, I mean, for writers out there, I would say try to concentrate first on, and mostly on the characters. But if it's historical, it has to be accurate. It really does. Yeah. So. As a writer, do you think it's better to be an introvert or an extrovert? In which category do you belong? I think most writers are probably introverts, and I definitely am an introvert. Mm-hmm. However, today being a writer is also meaning you have to be a marketer as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you you can write in your little closet and everything, but when the book is published, you must be out there. You must be out there. I, I'm, today I pushed uh, two business cards of mine <laughs> before I got here for this interview. You know, it's like every single day you are out there trying to sell your book to somebody. I always think if I can just sell my novel to one person today, 
Mm-hmm. You know, I'll be fine. And so uh, you always have to do that. And to be able to do that, I think it takes a little bit of extroversion, you know, just to go up to people and talk about your book. You have to Absolutely. be able to do that. Absolutely, yeah. It's not you know, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, by the way, introverts, it means that you derive energy when you're alone. And when you're an extrovert, it means you derive energy from being around people. Mm-hmm. It's not as quite as like, oh, you're introverted, meaning you're just like a shut-in or something. Terribly <laughs> shy. Or... And extroverted means like you're super friendly and gregarious. I mean, it's a little bit different than that. But yeah. I'd say the marketing, you have to be extroverted. You need Twitter feeds, you know, you need Facebook feeds, all of that. Yeah, it's a lot of work. It doesn't stop when you finish writing your book. It just It's only just begun, it seems. Right. Right, I'm always jealous of people. I, I've met several writers. I also go to writing conferences, you know, around the country, and I've met many writers, and they have like drawers and drawers and drawers and drawers of books. And so once they they sell their first novel, they have like the second one ready to go. You know, I'm mm-hmm. always jealous of those people because then they can concentrate, you know, on just the marketing. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, have them all ready to go, and then just boom, right. boom, boom. Yeah. Right. <laughs> And then you just yeah. become an extroverted person. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Um, so now do you have a muse? No. My process, um, Stephen King wrote a fantastic book, and it's called On Writing. And I really sort of subscribe to this. I mean, my book has nothing to do with his style of writing, but mm-hmm. I, I really subscribe to what he says, which is just basically you go in, you plant your butt in the chair, you turn on your computer, and you write. That's the mm-hmm. only way to get pages. It's like it's like knitting, you know, just do it. Every single day I write seven days a week. You know, I try to spend as much time writing as I possibly can, and the only thing that interferes is the marketing. Yeah. Yeah, so it's better to just write every day, I guess. Yeah, you just have, in my, you know, in my opinion, you just have to sit down, plunk yourself down, write every day. It's sort of like the whole, you know, ninety-nine percent perspiration, you know, one percent inspiration kind of thing. <laughs> right, 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 right. And in my case, I don't really worry too much about um, either writer's block or how good it is. I just want to write the pages, and then I figure I will catch it in the rewrite. Mm-hmm. You know, If it's not great, I'll do it, I'll do it over, and I'll do it over, and I'll do it over. And I mean, another cure for writer's block, I think, is just go back and rewrite something that you wrote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you have options, too. Yeah, you have options. Yeah. You have options. But the main thing, I think, is to just sit down, you know, every day, like try to write, like try to write. for. And it's, a lot of people compare it to a muscle. I'm not sure about comparing it to a muscle because I don't really love my relationship with myself at the gym, right? <laughs> you know, it, apparently, you know, it gets a lot stronger. So, for example, if you're just starting to write, maybe an hour a day is all you can do. Mm-hmm. But as you get um, stronger and better at it, you know, I think you could definitely write for five or six hours a day. Wow. Sounds like a long time. Yeah. Inside Scoop Live is a global internet-based broadcast specialized in interviewing published authors about their current books and their areas of expertise. 
Join us and hear both well-known and upcoming writers talking candidly about their life, experience, as well as the business of being an author in today's literary world. Always interesting and current, we strive to bring our audience high-quality discussions that spotlight a vast diversity of authors in the field today. Our interviews are available 24-7 through direct podcasts, as well as MP3 download from your computer for your convenience. Please visit us at InsideScoopLive.com. Welcome back to Inside Scoop Live. Today I'm talking with Diana Forbes, author of Mr. Suffragette. You can learn more about Diana Forbes and her debut novel by visiting her website at www.dianaforbesnovels.com. So what do you like to do when you're not writing? Well, I really do like history. Mm-hmm. So I like to go, I mean, it's fun for me to go and like catch an historical reenactment um, here in New York, I've been to the New York Historical Society very, very recently. You know, I like to see things like Hamilton, which I've seen twice now. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw the Great Comet of 1815. You know, just I'm I'm into history, so I like to do that. And yeah. I like I also if I'm you know if I just want a break, I might just go to an art museum. I find it very inspirational to see beautiful art, you know, of any time period, and just walk through the paintings and and just, you know, try to simmer down and get ideas that way. Well, you're looking in the right place for that. That's for sure, huh? (laughs) Yeah, it's just, it's a great, it's just so, the great thing about living in Manhattan is it's like a cultural jewel and there is like a lot of things to do here. Yeah. Now, your bio says you are determined to master the quadrille in your lifetime. Tell me a little bit about that. It's very difficult. It's actually a difficult. Those dances are hard to do. A lot of times, like if you go and you look up on YouTube, like the quadrille or another, let's say a Regency dance of some kind, a line dance, Mm -hmm. they look very easy, right? They are difficult to do. (laughs) So I just would like to be good at it. Yeah, I, I'm always amazed. Like I like to watch miniseries that old history type, you know, and and the, the people dancing in in the like Downton Abbey or something. Yeah, and they're you know everyone knows the dances, you know, and yes. it's like what how? <laughs> so actually, here's how. So back then there would be a dance master, and people would pay the dance master to tutor them in the dances. Mm. So the dance master would come over to people's homes, and t- let's say if you had, si- let's say you're a woman and you had sisters or whatever, he would come over and he would teach you all the dances mm-hmm. in the privacy of your home. Okay. It wasn't that you just went, you you didn't just go to a dance and then learn it there, you know. Right. The way we try to sometimes today with historical reenactments, we try to go and learn right there. That's not what happened. You were tutored in it. Dancing, all those things, piano, dancing and piano, those were considered skills that women really had to master, you know, yeah. so that they could get married. It's so interesting, that time period. Right. And, I mean, I have Penelope, one of the really interesting things that I learned in the process of researching the book was about a movement I had never heard of. And the movement was called the Rational Dress Movement. It was a movement toward breathable clothing. 
the movement was on the fringes, literally, hemline, you know, literally, <laughs> of the suffrage movement. There was like a fringe part of it that was about the dress because doctors were, at the time, some doctors were saying, you know, these corsets that women are wearing are hurting their ability to breathe, you know. Yeah. But the problem was that the solutions posited at the time were hideously ugly. <laughs> <laughs> and people would be laughed at, you know. Amelia Bloomer, who who wore bloomers, what we think of as bloomers, in 1850, mm-hmm. you know, she was laughed at. These solutions, they were laughed at because they really weren't elegant, and people yeah. wanted to be elegant, you know. And you just didn't think outside the box too much back then. It was not encouraged. <laughs> It was not encouraged, and actually back then women would be changing their clothing like seven times a day. Now, Mm. my protagonist, I mean, in that she has a fall. She has a fall, like her her father was sort of middle class, upper middle class, and then had a problem called the Panic of 1893, you know, and so she falls out of her class, sort of. Mm -hmm. As the book progresses, she becomes poorer and poorer and poorer, right? So I don't have her changing seven times a day, you know, because I she moves and I didn't want her to have to carry all that luggage with her, right? <laughs> you know, from Newport to Boston. So I don't have her change seven times a day. But other people, like of the richer class, were changing. The women would have to change seven times a day. There'd be different dresses for, oh, if you were taking a walk, that was like a particular outfit. And then if you were back home, like taking tea or having a caller visit you, that was another outfit. And you would just change and change and change. And that was your day. Your day was spent changing your clothes. That was your full-time job. That was your full-time job. (laughs) What's next? Do you have another project in the works? And if so, what can you tell us about it? My next project is the sequel. I have finished the rough draft, but my process is that I rewrite things, you know, 300 times. Yeah. So I'm somewhere in the rewrite process right now. I look forward to the sequel. Now, you talked a little bit about marketing earlier. What can you tell us about your publishing experience? Well, my book was published by a small independent press located in Arizona. It's called Penmore Press. Mm-hmm. And I think they did a fantastic job, you know, with the way the book looks, the way it feels in your hand. You know, it's it's just it's a nice reading experience, you know, just to hold it, the paperback, to feel it, et cetera. You know, that said, anybody today, any writer today, must also do help the marketing process. They must do it. It's, it's, it's you know, imperative. Mm-hmm. So... I'm, you know, I'm learning like how to market the book, how, you know, promotions that I can do. I had two launch parties here in Manhattan for it. I'll probably have another launch party this summer in the Hamptons for it. Just things you can do, you know, how to press your card into somebody's hand and make them buy the book. You know, writers have to be kind of a living advertisement for their own work. You are out there, too. I see you all the time on Facebook and Twitter. and I mean, you're doing an amazing job, yeah, I think, I marketing. Fun. I mean, one thing I thought would be fun would be like an old New York fun fact kind of a campaign, and I started doing that before the book was published. Uh-huh. I would just find out other interesting old New York, you know, the, the last third of the book takes place in Manhattan, and I would find out interesting things about New York that 
are sort of uncommonly known, and I would post about those. Do you have a blog about that? I don't have a blog because I just don't. I feel like my own theory is that people can only do certain things well. Right. And so I feel like my Twitter feed, I'm doing it well. Mm-hmm. And it gives me great pride, you know, to tweet every day and do it well. And I don't think um, I would do a blog that well. I mean, it's very, very, very difficult to really blog well. You have to yeah. plan it. You know, you have to think, you know, a year in advance about your different blogs and everything. And, of course, you know, you're writing for free. <laughs> right. I don't love either. Um, <laughs> but if somebody is into blogging, it's a great way to build their readership. It's like probably the best way, mm-hmm. but it just doesn't happen to be the way that I think I'm going to build mine, you know? Mm-hmm. I'd yeah. rather be there on social media. I'd rather be doing, you know, Facebook and, and Twitter a lot and, and you know, trying to get reviews and build it that way. Right. You just have to decide, you know, what you're good at. But I also feel like to be a living, you know, working writer, you just have, it's like half of your day you should spend marketing. That's a lot. <laughs> yes, it's a lot. It's a lot for yeah. you know. It's a lot for any writer who really wants to just write. <laughs> but I, I think you have to because otherwise you're not going to get your book, uh, your stories, the attention that they deserve. Right. You you know? can, hey, I wrote a book. Okay, everybody, just uh, go buy it now. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, <laughs> right. If it's like if 200 people buy it, to me that's not really enough. You know, yeah. you really just you want readership. You want readers, and to build to build it so that you get thousands of readers, you just have to work really hard. So so here's a little thing that I do, and maybe it will help with other writers. Um, I try to figure out when my best writing time is, mm-hmm. and then I try to write during that period of time because I feel like then I'll be more efficient. You know, so, like, I'm a morning writer. I like to write in the morning. And then I figure that by 3 o'clock, my brain is shot. <laughs> so I may as well then turn to the marketing. Mm. I think a lot about that. And I think that writers who figure that out, like, you know, some writers, I know writers who write at midnight. Like, they might write from midnight to 3 o'clock in the morning. But it doesn't matter. But figure out your, your best time and make that your writing time. And the rest of the time isn't remnant time. The rest of the time is marketing. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense and, and for everything, actually. I mean, I, I get up and I do my best work in the morning, So, and then by 2 o'clock I'm done because I can't take it anymore. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, and you know, and but some people, like, they write best in the afternoon, you know. Right. Uh, Diana, we're just about out of time, but I do have a one final question, and I, I was wondering what advice you would give to aspiring authors. I would say go find your community of writers. Go find them. They are there. Go to readings, join a class, join a critique group, because you are going to need your community of writers. Once you are published, you are going to need other writers to help you. They are going to read your book. They're going to give you reviews, and you can support each other. It doesn't have to be the lonely task it seems. Yeah. So I guess you also help like with Twitter and stuff like that to promote each other's work. Does it you extend? can promote each other's work. I mean, I met somebody who's a great reader recently. I mean, she's she's going to give my book to three people. 
in her building that she knows. You know, oh, nice. Thing. You can't, you know, you're not, to, to build the readership, you're going to need readers, but also other writers to help you. Right. Write a nice review for somebody today, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying that you cannot succeed, I don't think, by just sort of locking yourself in a closet and expecting your work to get out there. You need other people. It's a people business, so go find those other writers now. That's great advice. And where would you tell someone to find these writing groups? Well, what? my first one, I was in a writing class, and then another writer skimmed the best writers out of the class and said, let's join a group. Oh. So that's one great way to do it. Mm-hmm. Another way is there are literary conferences all over the country. Start Googling them. Go to a literary conference. Meet some people. Maybe you can join a group. I'm not a big online group person, but there are many, many online critique groups as well. So mm-hmm. that's another solution if you prefer that. But I, I also feel that part of it is getting out there and meeting other writers and readers and helping each other. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Diana. I really enjoyed uh, getting to know more about you and your work, and I'm, I can't wait for the next book. I really, I'm looking forward thank to that. Thank you so much. Thanks for interviewing me, and you know, thank you for the kind words and the kind sentiment. To our listeners, thank you for joining us today at Inside Scoop Live for my interview with Diana Forbes, author of Mistress Suffragette. Once again, you can find more information about Diana Forbes and her books at www.dianaforbesnovels.com. And be sure to check out our other interviews at InsideScoopLive.com. <laughs>